This is exactly right. Hello and welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am Dr. Dan, your host. And let me tell you a little bit about Parent Footprint. Our mission at Parent Footprint is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same happiness, health, engagement, and of course, awareness. Awareness at Parent Footprint is the foundation of your vision of successful parenting. And with this increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show is called A New Theory of Teenagers, Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Teen. And this is by our host, Dr. Krista Santangelo, who is totally aligned with our Parent Footprint mission. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Krista. Dr. Krista is a clinical psychologist in private practice and on the faculty of University of California, San Francisco. She's been in practice for over 20 years and during that time has utilized approaches to change, which include short-term solution-focused work, cognitive behavioral strategies, analytic mindfulness-based, and others. She was trained at Yale University and holds advanced training in yoga, meditation, and using mind-body approaches to healing. Dr. Krista, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Dan. It's wonderful to be here. So how did this book come to be? Well, thank you again so much for having me. And I want to just say that I love the mission your mission and the idea of creating a more loving and compassionate world, one parent and one child at a time is so important. And, you know, highlighting happiness, health awareness, it's something that I've really noticed and observed and all of that, you know, the the components of that mission really sort of were the foundations for the writing of the book. And so, yes. Yeah. So I think in my many years, you know, sometimes I say to people that the book sort of wrote me. I think you can probably relate to that when <laughs> you, you just yeah. see something over and over. And, you know, as you know from being a practitioner, you know, in our work, I always say that, you know, we're, we're in the business of healing, we're in the business of suffering. And what I would see day to day would be parents were suffering and teens were suffering, but the parents always seemed to be suffering a little more. <laughs> And the parents had the components of change that, that I see that, you know, are sort of posited as necessary, which are you're suffering and you're motivated, right? And the teens that I was seeing, they often, often they would be suffering. They'd be having a variety of challenges. And for them, as we know, you know, developmentally trial and error, you know, leaping before you look, having a few bumps and bruises isn't really as a really huge problem for them, right? So we'd have the parent bringing the teenager in and the teenager feeling like, yeah, you know, I ended up in the ER and I was drinking and I don't know, I, I think I learned my lesson, it's all good, you know? And the parent would be 
you know, having a different type of reaction. So I would see these two very separate versions of the event. And so because, you know, I try to be practical and the teenager didn't seem to be too miffed about their condition much of the time. And again, I'm generalizing. Of course, there were teenagers who were suffering or depressed and they wanted to use therapy. But there was also these many cases where the parents were suffering a lot and the parents were really motivated to change. And so I thought, why don't I shift the lens in the work? And that's where the new theory comes in. It's sort of, hmm, how can parents look deeply inside and really understand in a very exquisite and detailed way what's happening inside of them that's complicating the challenge with the teenager. And so the way I put it, you know, people say, well, my teenager did do these bad things. And of course I'm upset. You know, she stayed out out past her curfew or she smoked pot. And I kind of like the analogy of it's like the difference between having a virus and getting pneumonia. Like you're going to have a virus if you have a kid, it's challenging. You know, I have a child and we all know that there's challenges, but Mm -hmm. I would be seeing rather than just the normal challenges, the pneumonia, right? Where then there's the parent, you know, getting into this downward spiral of trust and mistrust and my child betrayed me and issues that were deep and unhealed within the parent would come out and be triggered. And that would create what I would call more of the pneumonia. And then we would be in Mm -hmm. a more intractable dance. So the book came from those sort of challenges and then identifying what I saw as sort of some simple steps to unwind these very challenging conflictual patterns that the parent and the child would see. And that's, that's how it all came to be. I love the idea of what you just said about virus versus pneumonia. I mean, that, that is such a, that's so symbolic. And, and also I just want to reiterate this, that you can't have kids without having a virus or catching a virus. Like it just does not work. And the other thing that you triggered for me is how often in my office I'm telling, you know, it's easier for me to tell other people with teenagers mm-hmm. than of course me with my own. Mm. But how often when they say, I can't believe they did this to me and mm. how could they do this to me? And then we have to help them see that actually they weren't doing it to you at all. Mm. They were mm-hmm. just trying to live their life. They're, they weren't yes. even considering you. It's not personal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's so many of the struggles and particularly with teenagers that we see do press those particularly kind of issues that are particularly easy to personalize, right? So they're lying to me. They're betraying me. They're not talking to me. They're not considering my opinion anymore. They're doing things to endanger themselves, right? Most of us would feel personally challenged by that. First on the, you know, one dimension of, you know, the sort of ill-founded assumption that we're supposed to protect them from all harm, but we do feel that, you know, so it's like, wow, you're not letting me Mm -hmm. protect you. And then the second part is, again, you know, there's a reality to kids being challenging, right? And let's, and they are quote unquote rude or selfish or self-involved. And so parents understandably and validly, all of us can kind of dig our heels in and, you know, it's like, 
write the list of egregious behaviors and just kind of stare at it, you know, tearfully and angrily and say, it really is true that emptying the dishwasher is really not too high of a bar for me. I am not giving up on the dishwasher. Are you trying to tell me that she shouldn't empty the dishwasher? And it's like, well, that is not what I'm saying. However, the level of reaction you're having isn't helping us to get her to empty the dishwasher. So there's also that, I'm sure you've seen this in your practice, right? That kind of yes and kind of Mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we do want to support you to have your teenagers be more kind, loving, you know, dishwasher emptying humans. And at the same time, if you're not noticing the part of you that's getting overly reactive, they're just going to be really enjoying the show of you losing your mind over the dishwasher. Exactly. And this is where your point is about the importance of parents being in touch with their own emotions, because of course, how can we help our teens deal with their emotions if we're not aware of or repressing our own? Yes. Yes. And I love, you know, um, what you've written about and, and, and shared, you know, in your past podcast and on your platform about that. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that's, um, simple, but not easy. Right. So we can talk about it and it sounds a little bit repetitive sometimes for people. Well, I understand. I need to understand my emotions. Okay. But now what do I need to do? Tell me what to do after that. And so, you know, how do we, all, all of us as parents slow it down and really have compassion for ourselves and get to know our own, you know, I love parenting footprint, our own blueprint as a human mm-hmm. and what were our early wounds and, you know, what, again, usually, usually they're sort of hidden in these valid concerns and valid behaviors. And that's why it's challenging, right? Our kid ends up in the ER, our kid is lying, our kid is, you know, failing out of school, being rude. We want to focus on those behaviors and we're concerned and we should. And at the same time, if it's somehow mirroring something in us, somehow it's harder to communicate to our teenager in a way that they can hear us. And we all, we all kind of know what particular dance we get into with our teenager. You know, some parents are, as, as I've mentioned, very sensitive to betrayal. And as we know, you know, 99% of teenagers lie for one reason or another. Part of it is establishing their own autonomy. Part of it is that shifting world of, well, I was at Tina's and then we decided to go for pizza and, you know, things are a little fluid. So if I'm someone who gets particularly triggered by betrayal and it reminds me of my stepfather who lied to me or my sister who was a closet alcoholic or whatever it is, I'm going to have a highly reactive and kind of rigid reaction to something that, of course, we would like to instill in our teens that telling the truth is a good thing. At the same time, if we're reacting, you know, in an overly kind of emotional way to they moved from the pizza place to the Chinese restaurant and, and she didn't text you, your credibility as a parent who has a point of view that they want to hear goes way down. So I'm always trying to tell right, parents, right, even though right. what you're feeling is true, I'm trying to help you be credible and effective. And the way you become credible and effective is managing your own triggers. So it's it's kind of 
practical while it also feels a little bit like, why are you trying to turn it all on me again? You know, I mean, as parents, do we really need something else to do? No, but no, <laughs> sometimes, you know, yeah. So you get it. It's yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to ask you the uh, simple question without the easy yeah. answer because the parents yeah. who are listening here, which is, okay, yes. yeah, sounds good. Dr. Yeah. Krista, so mm-hmm. how do I manage my emotion when I'm triggered? Like, what do I do? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. You know, and so one answer is I do believe that having a therapist for most parents is a wonderful idea. You know, I do live in the Bay Area, so this is something that's more part of the culture. But I, I believe that having a trusted other, again, it might be a therapist, it might be a minister, it might be a wonderful parent, but another human to support you and to hear you and to hold you and to help you, you know, kind of decipher, okay, well, is this really the moment that you're going to like bury the Xbox or is this the moment that you're going to have a conversation? Like those are hard moments to figure out. So definitely therapy or trusted others who can help you better understand yourself would be one thing that I, I recommend. Mm -hmm. You know, the other is, um, you know, the simple things that we learn in certain practices like yoga or meditation, right? Biting our tongue, taking a breath, walking away, you know, learning about our own, you know, internal thermometer. So if my, you know, heart is in my throat pounding at, you know, 70 miles per hour, whatever it would be, and I can feel myself get dysregulated, fancy word for about to murder someone, my child. Yep. Yep. Again, it's not always easy, but how do I remove myself from the situation to then come back to a place of equilibrium before I re-engage? So those are kind of an, you know, another mm-hmm. set of tips. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the idea, my first strategy in the book is called endure emotions. So almost, you know, welcoming, welcoming the challenging emotions and knowing that when I'm feeling the challenging emotions, Likely, I might need more time to figure out whether I should be having a conversation with my teenager, setting up another consequence or changing his you know, rewards, or is this a moment for me? And again, it's not always easy, but we can go to our body again, put the feet on the ground, take a deep breath. And you know, again, having a, obviously a program of practices is optimal. Not that we none of, any of us have time for it, but you know, having a mindfulness practice or just having a few minutes a day to, you know, as you talk about on many of your other podcasts, find time for yourself and feed yourself. Again, these are all things that we quote unquote know to do. But in my experience, when I'm talking to parents who are the most reactive, they're usually having problems with most of them, and they've they've sort of given up on turning the lens at all towards themselves. There's some way that Mm -hmm. they, you know, Mm -hmm. that they either can't, which is understandable or, you know, sort of have big challenges around kind of, yeah, figuring out Mm -hmm. inside what is, what is happening. But again, it's not easy. Yeah. No, it's not easy. And I I do like this concept of enduring emotion which does seem like it comes from the uh, mindfulness-based philosophy in school. And so many of us react 
right? Yes. Like we feel something yes. and we react. And what you're talking about with a breath or a walk away or counting backwards from 10, whatever it is to give ourselves some time and some space yes. from the trigger to the reaction is always a good thing. It's never a bad thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I really love... Um, Dan Siegel's work, Parenting from the Inside Out, is a mm -hmm. wonderful book. And, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of the reflective capacity, which is a really hard thing. You know, the idea of how do I stop, get curious, and step back from my immediate intense emotions so that then I can have a more curious and wondering and inquiring attitude towards the person in front of me, my teenager. So again, there's kind of, once we, once we have a name for something, even though it's hard to do, it's like, oh, the reflective capacity. Okay. The first step in the reflective capacity is what's happening for me. And if I haven't even gotten there, trying to figure out or blame or judge or, you know, make statements about my teenager is probably going to be less effective. So, you know, again, it's mm -hmm. not easy, but it's, I've seen that people who take that concept seriously and figure out ways to again, even just, even just a self timeout, you know, we learn about timeouts with kids and with couples, you know, it's like, I take timeouts all the time for my daughter. I'm like, I'm getting flooded. I need to leave. And she's like, oh, okay, mom. Yeah. Th thanks so much. <laughs> Appreciate that. You're not going to get so angry at me. I mean, I, you know, I know what to do. It doesn't mean that I can do it all the time. Right. So, right. You know, and this brings me, this also brings me to something else that you talk about, the paradox of trust. Mm. And of course, people were talking about teenagers. We're talking about teenagers who are working to individuate um, from us. Mm -hmm. We are talking about people who are at a place in life where they really do think that they have all the answers and nothing bad will happen. Yes. And yet we're triggered and there's this paradox of trust. And I just have to say this thing that you said, which I love, is give your teen room to explore and then lower your expectations. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, I see this a lot. And, you know, again, it, I call it the paradox of trust or the, the trust-mistrust cycle. And so what we see is, you know, teenager in trouble, in quotes, right, exploring or, you know, staying out too late, vaping, one of all the many things that they do yeah, to name it, right? explore, yeah. name it. And then the parent, um, again, feeling like, well, I'm trying to give you trust. And every time I, you know, I call it like opening the fence so the wild horses can kind of ride a bit farther out. Okay. I opened the fence and then the horse jumped over the fence, crashed into a tree and is now lying there like bleeding to death. That's too right. dramatic, but this is what yeah. we're seeing. So the parents That's looking pneumonia. at me like, okay. yeah, there's pneumonia. What? So you're telling me that this horse, you know, we're going to keep the fence as wide as it is. We're going to make the fence wider. Like what, where, where's your mind, Dr. Krista? And so again, the paradox here is how do I talk, help the teenager see that by pushing the boundaries of mistrust with her parent, she's going to be, have less freedom. And what I tell my parents is, even though they're the ones that seem to be doing the problematic behaviors, because you're older and you're the parent, I'm going to rely on you to be the one who has to be the grown up, even when they're wrong. And that's another paradox. You know, It's like, why do I have to do something when they're the ones making all the trouble? It's like, this is the hard moment as a parent. 
because you're the right. parent, right? So again, it doesn't mean that we keep opening the fence and we ignore the fact that our kid, you know, might have a drinking problem or, you know, of course I address all those problems, but the idea is as a parent, how do I communicate to them? You know what? I get that you're experimenting. I get that you broke my trust right now. How can we set something up where I can make sure you're safe, but I can also understand that when you break my trust, it's sort of, as you mentioned, Dr. Dan, part of your developmental journey. And I'm going to, you know, kind of give you another chance. I'm going to be clear that there's not endless chances. However, I'm not going to take you know, your mistakes as, you know, a mortal wound that then locks you in the room for the rest of your life. I mean, we've done that, you know, I've come from the places where we padlock the teen in the room, you know, it doesn't really work. So does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I'm thinking of a, a prior experience several years ago with a teenage client and his parents, and he was smoking marijuana and his parents did not like the amount of marijuana he was smoking. And of Mm -hmm. course, they were concerned. Mm -hmm. And so we were working on this and choices and relationship and all this good Mm -hmm. stuff. And then they come back a month later and they say, Dr. Dan, I've got great news. The parents, great news. I'll make up the name. Mm -hmm. Johnny, Johnny has not smoked in 30 days. I said, wow, that's that's a big step given where he was. So Mm -hmm. have you let him out of your sight? And has he been out in the last 30 days? And they said, absolutely not. We always have our eyes on him. And I said, well, I'm not sure it's as good a news as we think then, right? Like how do we, Mm -hmm. like this is the challenge these days is we need, we do need to protect our kids in some respects from themselves if they're engaging in dangerous or potentially dangerous behavior. But how do we give them enough rope to actually learn the skills and make the decisions and, you know, and get these bumps on the way? It's a tough dance. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that example. And it's, it is a tough dance. And I think, you know, this kind of brings me to the other important, and this is part of, I think your mission and a lot of folks have been writing about it recently, but you know, the quality, we know that the quality of the relationship between the parent and the teen is the number one prognostic sign Mm -hmm. for success. And so again, let's work on, and this is again, where I turned my attention to parenting. Let's work on the things that we have in our control. Like I don't really have in control how much pot is in the vape pen in the bathroom at the, at the dance. I wish I did, Mm -hmm. but I do have in control how I speak to you, how I manage my own triggers how I balance sort of putting the fence out for freedom and then pulling it in. And again, that doesn't always work. Sometimes our teens will continue to challenge us beyond, you know, the wonderful relationship we have. But, you know, again, Mm -hmm. I like to say, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to try to be in places where we can't actually affect change or legislate. So that's, that's sort of where I go to looking at your own triggers, having the relationship Mm -hmm. you want, which you know, again, which can leverage these other aspects of of challenge, mm-hmm. what they're getting into. And, and this, of course, is all about communication. And mm-hmm. um, those of us with teenagers and those of you listening out there, um, I'm sure know that um, in, often unless you strike just right in the right way, there's not going to be a lot of words or yes. um, we had a prior guest that basically said the attention span your child has to talk to you is 
the same as their years in life. So, right, if you have a 14-year-old, <laughs> 14 minutes max. And so yeah. you talk about how much of communication is actually nonverbal mm-hmm. rather than verbal. So tell us about what we should be looking for with this nonverbal communication. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that's very true. And that's also why, just to comment, you know, I we want to choose which conversations we want to have because they are, mm-hmm. you know, precious, the moments and the conversations we have. So, yeah. So, you know, we know that most as animals, most of the communication that we, that happens between us is nonverbal. So what does that mean? You know, when we're reactive, at least for me, you know, most of us go into verbal mode. We go into castigating, blaming, worst case scenarios, what's going to happen to him, you know, you're going to be homeless in a box, you know, that's my favorite one. No, I never said that to my kid. But <laughs> so again, how do we and you know, parents will come in and say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm really worried about my kid or I'm really ashamed of my kid or my kid reminds me of my ex-husband who would always do this." But you know, I never I never tell him any of this. And again, it's not that we have to then become the perfect Buddha. You know, we all have feelings, but the idea that our children are only listening to our words, I think is just something that we need to understand. So again, back to managing emotions. If I'm non-verbally through facial gestures or through, you know, behaviors, communicating one thing and saying something different, our, our teens will pick that up. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of, again, attending to that aspect of the communication, because again, it's a, it's a biological imperative, right? That our kids are extremely tuned into us. They want to know, is mom happy? Is mom going to be able to put food on the table? You know, so any little eyebrow twitch, it's like mom's nervous, mom's sad, mom's about to blow, you know, they're tuned in. And again, this is not about being a perfect parent. I'm just, that is not at all where we're going with this. It's just more about how do I work on myself so that you know, my nonverbal communication is is reflecting what I want to say, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they pick up on us, and we might try to be saying the right thing, but a lot of our kids are sensitive and intuitive and yeah. are looking for authenticity from us, and they know when they're not getting it. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. And that's definitely one thing that I've seen through all the work that I've done in clinics and private practice, that they appreciate authenticity. And that's, you know, their developmental Mm -hmm. stage is really one of parsing out, you know, what part of me is real and what part of me is just putting on for show kind of thing. And so similarly, Mm -hmm. they want that in the, you know, the adults in their lives. So again, the more that we're able to be authentic, again, whether that's sad or angry, you know, so it doesn't mean you have to cry in front of your kid all the time or scream, but just again, awareness, hey, dad really needs to take a moment. He's about to get angry. I'm going to go over here and just kind of calm down. You know, teenagers are, and children are very appreciative of that. And it's a good modeling exercise. Oh, wow. When we have emotions, we can handle them. So, yeah. So you have several pearls of wisdom in your book. And of course, um, seven of them are highlighted as these seven transformational changes. Mm-hmm. If you could pick one thing to leave with our listeners, Mm -hmm. what would be that one thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, kind of, I think the one thing would be what drove me to write the book, which was there would be teenagers in my office who 
felt so alienated from their parents because, again, with parents who were loving and well-meaning, but because they had not taken a moment to really do their own work that they had projected so much on their teenager and that, and that the teenager felt completely misunderstood. And there was kind of, and again, this is an extreme example, but where I would say, so is there any way we're going to reconnect with mom or dad? And there would be a look on their face, like there's no going back. There's just too mm. much damage done. And for me as, you know, personally, I'm a connector and I you know love people. I, I really value the bonds of love and nurturance like most people, but it's a particularly strong aspect of my, you know, being, if you will. And so seeing that a, a person in your own family could be so alienated from you and almost to be irrevocable and that there was no path back was sort of chilling to me. And as a mom, the idea that my own child could be that alienated from me felt very galvanizing. Like, wow, you know, I understand that people mm -hmm. can, you know, we have enemies or there's people who hurt us or there's wars, you know, the world is full of conflict, but that someone in our own family could have such a high level of distrust and alienation. So I guess what I would say is, again, this is sort of putting out the worst case scenario, but choose, you know, choose your battles, choose the hill you want to die on. Think about, think about your own challenges and engage in some process. Again, whether it's five minutes of a day having a walk or therapy or meditation or just taking a few breaths and thinking about what part of myself am I possibly putting on my teen that they're kind of carrying with them and it's a burden and how is that impacting our relationship because most parents I know mm -hmm. you know their relationship with their child is the jewel in the crown of their life right so it's to me that right. sort of moment of hmm is this really worth it? Is this, is this worth right. my, you know, emotional response and just getting to know that in yourself? I don't know if that's just one thing, but that's sort of what I would leave no, with. That's, that's exactly, I think that's what we all need to hear. And, you know, just to reiterate what you talk about is with all this is relationship and the relationship is the number one indicator of health and success. Yes. Um, and so we do need to check ourselves and our expectations and what we're personalizing and projecting. Yes. So again, it's like awareness of self yes. is the number one thing we can do, which totally fits with what, what you started off the show with is, you know, it seems like kids are suffering, but parent and parents are suffering and the parents are really motivated. So everyone, this is something that you can do yes. that will not only help yourself, but greatly impact your child's development and also your relationship with your child. Yes. And there, and in the book, there are a lot of more there are practical solutions and tips and guided meditations and sort of, a, you know, more step-by-step -step ways to, mm -hmm. to um, uncover these patterns in ourselves. You know, Dostoevsky said that hell is the inability to love. And I guess that that's another sort mm. of description of what you said, what's the one thing, you know, if we're feeling yeah. an inability to love our own child in moments, which again is natural, but you know, that, that feels like something to, to understand. So, yeah. And I, I have yeah. great compassion for parents being one. So again, this is all said with no judgment about anything that anyone feels because we run the gamut as parents. Oh, yeah. And we are all in it with you. <laughs> as yes, parents. exactly. Okay, Dr. Krista, it is time for the parent okay. footprint moment question. Yes. Tell us okay. about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or yeah. parent. Yes. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. 
Yes. Thank you. I really love this question. And um, I think it's a wonderful exercise for parents to do. Yeah. So um, this was in the book at the beginning. I was um, working and my daughter was at a friend's and her, the father of the friend had just put up this elaborate rope swing in the backyard. So she was there and I'm talking to patients. And then I look over to my phone and the text says, come to ER now. So like, okie dokie, heading out to the ER. (laughs) So at any rate, I arrive and my daughter's there just full, you know, screaming wires, looking pretty unhappy. And she had, you know, banged into a tree and been unconscious and gets to the ER by herself with, you know, I'll spare everyone the details, but it was, it was a bit of a traumatic experience for her. And so I'm there and she's just, you know, there's needles going into her face and they're trying to figure out how to rewire things. And, and it was one of the first extreme traumas of her life. There was another one that was a little, a little traumatic. And I remember just feeling like there's got, I have to find some way to manage this distress in myself because the idea that she was in pain and, you know, she wasn't going to die, but I didn't know that at the time was just, of course, unbearable. And so I did my, some little prayers and breathing. And what, what it came to was, again, only through the pain, we get the, the jewels, that she is going to suffer. And I am not going to be able to help prevent her from suffering sometimes. And, I'm not, and I may not even be able to comfort her. And that idea of how separate we are from our children and how helpless we can be turned into, you know, kind of a positive in the way of, you know, having a more realistic relationship with her over time. And so that idea that, you know, our children are very separate from us at the same time we impact them, I think can be a hard lesson to really feel into. And that was one of the experiences that helped me um, understand that, you know, I am not God. Before that, I thought I was. Oh, my gosh. Mm. And yeah, so that was my parenting moment. Talk about enduring emotion. Yes. (laughs) Serious. Yeah, these traumas are traumas for us as well, right? Oh. Ah. Yeah. We'll all breathe through that. Okay. And everything's okay. She got through it. No, but this is... Yep. She got through it with only a phobia for needles, which we're handling, and it's all good, you know? We get a little scraped up in this lifetime. Well, and I think that's so important about the story, and thank you for sharing this with us, yeah. is that that separateness and that we be, you know, we want to keep our kids from being hurt, feeling pain. And then this notion, this idea that was right in your face, literally, that there is nothing you can do about that. Yes. Which, which is really true most of the time, but we, I think we want to believe that we can do something many times when it's not such a physically visible pain or illness. Yes. No, and to finish, the time for one little anecdote, or are we totally yes, out of yes, time? Yes, 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 go ahead. Sure. Oh, well, no, another, I think it was a spiritual teacher. I don't remember exactly who was speaking about this, but I thought it was wonderful. You know, he was talking about how one of the reasons that, you know, as parents, of teenagers, we have so many challenges is that, you know, the, the period of connection, the period of them being small is so long that the day that they look at us and say, like, here's the hand, I'm leaving, we're just shocked by that. But that's sort of the truth all along, as you're saying, right? It's like, mm-hmm. the truth mm-hmm. all along is that they're on their way out. But it because it takes such a long time, we just get used to the period where we're actually 
you know, in control. So I thought that was an interesting way to phrase it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Everyone, check out Dr. Krista's book, A Theory of Teenagers, Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Teen. You just heard a just the tip of the iceberg of some ideas for you to start thinking about. There's much more in the book. Uh, Dr. Krista, tell us where people can um, follow the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. So um, my website, KristaSantangelo.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. And you'll find other podcasts and information, you know, on my on my website and on Facebook, Twitter. I don't think I'm on Instagram right Not now. Not yet. Stay but, tuned. And I'm going to be doing some talks around the Bay Area and across the country. And stay tuned for that. Check Dr. Krista out so you can hear more of her wisdom. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Dan. Wonderful to talk to you. It's great stuff and can't wait to uh, hear about what you're doing. And uh, there's more There's there's more in there. There's more in there. So everyone stay tuned. Thank you for joining us today. Um, you know that our goal is for all of us to work on seeking our own awareness, being more intentional about what we want for ourselves, what we want for our children, and to really, really try to be the person we want our child to become, to lead by example, to be authentic, and show them the way by doing. A couple tidbits from Dr. Krista that we need to keep in mind that when we raise teenagers, we're going to get viruses. Let's try to avoid thinking about them as pneumonia. We need to endure our strong emotions, manage our triggers, really Think about trust and showing our children trust and focus on that relationship. Check us out at www.parentfootprint.com. We have Parent Footprint Awareness Training, which is designed to help with awareness and intention. And finally, think about the question I think about all the time. What footprint do you want to leave?